PHDiva's podcast has been going strong for five years. We are more excited than ever about the world of podcasting as academics. We want to keep bringing you great content, and to do that, we need your help with the cost of production. That's right, Zai. Through Patreon, you will support our 2020 vision for PhDiva's podcast. Better features, new equipment, and you'll get exclusive access to original content like the bloopers reel for this ad, by the way, and our reading list and outtake. Propose an episode. Get a special shout out. Yeah, exciting this is all going to be. Help us take the podcast to the next level. Click on the Patreon link to find out the many ways that you can support us. And as always, even if you can't support us financially, you can always help out by following us on Facebook and Twitter under PhDMS Podcast. It helps a lot when you rate us and write a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. So listeners, um, thanks for tuning in. And I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Zain Yao, the Humanities co-host of PhDMS Podcast, podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. And you may remember that the last guests um, I had on I managed to cross paths with them at this fantastic Decolonizing STEM event, and I'm so excited to have yet another friend that I made, Alex Fitzpatrick, or rather Dr. Alex Fitzpatrick, who is an archaeologist. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on the show today, Alex. Uh, tell us a little bit about Thank yourself. You um, well, I, I guess, am I, I'm not really doctor yet. As of this recording, I've submitted my thesis, and I haven't done my visa yet. And I'm scared to jinx it. <laughs> oh, sorry. So. But I, I see, I don't see it as like a jinx. Well, from my perspective, because you're awesome. Like, this is just like hailing the future <laughs> you that was always, you know, you know, going to be Alex Fitzpatrick, PhD. So. so I, I, will, I will say I cannot wait till I can start using that all the time and be really obnoxious about it. Um, oh, definitely. Every time person. I sign up for something and they ask for your title, <laughs> you put it in. You're like, I earn this shit. Yeah, I plan on uh, copying my degree and sending it to all my high school teachers once that's sorted. As a yay, thanks for cheering for me or rubbing in their face kind of way? Rubbing in their faces because no one thought I would amount to anything, to be completely honest. Uh-huh. Everyone thought I was like a complete mess. <laughs> like, So, you know, but yeah, um, I'm a complete mess, as I said. What else? Uh, I'm a zooarchaeologist, uh, which means that I do archaeology but specifically the archaeology of animal bones and animal histories and things like that um as you can tell by my accent i am a american uh originally a new yorker now i live in the uk and i'm uh, extremely unemployed so yeah that's it covid era but yeah. <laughs> I, feel, I feel really lucky that um, I ran into you at this event, especially as another like um, diasporic Asian who's not from the UK, who's also trying to wrestle mm-hmm. through what it means to be in the space when, well, I think, so a critique that often happens in North America is that when people say Asian, it often tends to only represent East Asians over Southeast Asians or, or South Asians. Whereas here, it's actually the case mm-hmm. that when Asian is used, they usually mean South Asian. And so that very sort of basic difference is why sometimes in the main grocery store aisle and, you know, the beloved quote unquote ethnic aisle, you'll sometimes see the sign for Asian next to Oriental because at least that's what I've noticed that sometimes they use Oriental to designate East Asian. Um, have you had any interesting yeah. observations of that yourself? Um, yeah, no, that I always found that very strange. Also, one thing I really realized, and uh, let me just put the disclaimer that I'm also a mix. So I may not read as Asian to some people. Most people can tell that I'm uh, Asian. 
but I get <laughs> one thing I found really interesting when I moved here is that back in New York, I was always seen, you know, Asian or Chinese first. And that, that was how I was like othered. And then here in this country, the moment I open my mouth, they're like, oh, American. So mm -hmm. kind of like seeing my identity kind of change in terms of the like hierarchy was, was really fascinating when I moved here. Um, and also why there are no dim sum places. I'm dying. Also, it's way more expensive. Oh, Have you even gone to dim sum here or when like... I... No, I haven't. So when I moved here, my uh, my side of the family that's from China, they're originally from Hong Kong. So my papa, uh, my grandmother came up to me and was just like, you will never have a good Chinese meal again. <laughs> like when no! you move there. <laughs> oh, that's brutal. It was harsh, but kind of fair in that like, yeah, it's, you know, I'm from New York. So, you know, Flushing, Chinatown are all there really easily within reach. My family comes from Flushing. Um, it's like the best Chinese food uh, that you could probably have outside of China, um, at least in America. And uh, coming here where it's just like, I don't, I don't get it. Also, why do you get chips at a Chinese takeaway? I don't get that. Uh, yeah, I, it's, it's interesting, I think, just to see. I'm curious to what extent is the creation of British Chinese food similar or different to like like Asian American Chinese food as that sort of um, immigrant ingenuity adapting to to local places because it definitely mm -hmm. seems to have similar like goopy neon sauces but I guess it's not doesn't surprise me that the British version has chips as they call them uh, as they are very insistent on it <laughs> but I have found some good I food. Actually, oh yeah, no, definitely. I've I definitely found some good food. Luckily, I don't live that far away from some uh asian markets so i can at least get like frozen hagao and uh shumai and stuff so i can get my like dim sum fill but it's not the same you know and especially not the same when it comes to prices because i'm it's so much more expensive to get. it's yeah no i i like literally i am always just like i took my time in new york for granted I, where i could get like a 50 cent like thing of like a couple dumplings or whatever <laughs> weeping uh, but i think the way that you're read is such an interesting thing because of course we're recording it during the coronavirus era which probably is not surprising at this point because who knows when we're going to be out of it um but i think it's so <laughs> interesting the way that this the specter of the chinese international like continues to mm. be this figure of like liminal acceptance to i guess financial markets and yet always feared and here made like epidemiological in a way that it was like also the case in the turn of the 20th century and i was wondering how how you mm. have navigated it like have you experienced backlash in london or have, what sort of things have you observed or has it made you reflect on your positionality here um well i'm actually based up north so it's a little bit different i think um, I'm in Leeds right now, uh, for West Yorkshire. And, um, in the beginning I did actually get like, um, people yelling at me, like only like once or twice people yelling at me. Someone like yelled at me from their car, uh, and stuff like that, but it wasn't necessarily as bad as I think it could have been. And I think it also helps that I don't leave my house anymore. So. <laughs> I'm sorry you had to experience that though. Like, I feel like what I experienced is also like fairly mild in terms of like people staring at me or moving away or covering their faces or like 
sometimes mm, strangers yeah. coughing on me, but like I didn't experience any mm. slurs. And also like one of the high profile cases of anti-Chinese um, racist violence happened to a student at UCL, my university. And that's what really freaked me out. He's the, oh, wow. the guy that got beaten up really badly and had to have surgery oh, afterwards. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, like, definitely thankful that I really didn't get much. But the fact that I still got some of it, you know, I mean, it made me more worried, to be honest, of my family who are back in the States. Um, mm -hmm. They live in North Carolina now. And I know that they've... They seem to be all right. I think my, my grandparents have gotten some, like, you know, a bit of stairs and, like, the kind of shifting away. But otherwise, they seem to be okay. But, like, it, it's it's uh, a lot to have that, like, anxiety of, like, worrying about my family in the States on top of worrying for myself, I guess. Uh, it's a lot to be anxious about, I think, in coronavirus days. Yeah, it's like transnational anxieties um, become this whole other mm. dimension of it. Yeah, I don't. I guess oddly, I wasn't worried about my family in terms of having anti-Chinese racist backlash in Toronto because I almost. I also wonder how it would have been. Things were were affected by like SARS when it hit Toronto because Toronto was hit so badly, and then that was like very intensely linked to like anti-Chineseness and then anti-Asian racism. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, oddly enough, I didn't it occurred to me to be worried about them in the same way because like they're yeah they're, they're lucky to be fairly fairly privileged and like it's the the population is also dense enough in terms of Asians that it would be sort of slightly absurd not that the racist stuff doesn't happen clearly that's not the case um and yet for some reason that wasn't something that I was worried about but I'm I feel also really lucky to be talking to you um as you're coming to the end of your degree as you're with your rightful PhD but as you also mentioned you're struggling with being very unemployed right now and uh, I mean that's definitely something that we should talk about like in our master's program of course we have so many students who are asking about applying for BHG programs and as I put together a workshop and I've been talking to everyone individually I have to keep on reiterating like you have to do your research please look at these are the job lists this job list for mm -hmm. the for the Modern Language Association is for all the jobs that are available in North America and beyond right now. Look how many jobs there are now, yeah. how many people are graduating. And then even now, like so many programs are not even accepting people. And so I'm really trying to help people to make informed decisions without necessarily deterring them. D did you feel like your program has given you job placement supports? And I guess, do you have particular reflections on the state of archaeology as a field? Because actually, you're the first archaeologist I've, I've ever talked to. So I'd like to know a little Ooh. bit about like what what the field has been grappling with, because at least at my institution, archaeology is one of the departments that apparently has been doing a lot more in terms of what they call, quote unquote, here, decolonization. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, it's weird because archaeology um, has is one of those kind of things where it does have a commercial side to it. So in some respects, you do have a bit more of a um, like a bit more of a like safety net in terms of, you know, you you're not just funneled into, you know, tenure job positions and things like that. You can if you can't find anything in academia, you could probably find something commercial and, you know, there's still a lot of commercial work going around. I, to be honest, I think most of the archaeological jobs I've seen are commercial. Um, and ac academically, though, it's kind of, you know, it's always kind of been a bit of a 
a sinking ship in terms of positions, uh, specifically here in the UK. Um, I think uh, Brexit has caused a lot of stuff to kind of get moved out to uh, Europe. Um, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I am in a very unique position of like kind of staying with my PhD because I'm very stubborn. Uh, I've been very uh, uh, bad at kind of planning things. So I kind of was just like, hopefully there'll be a doubt at the end of this. Um, and of course I ended up in the middle of a global pandemic. Uh, and I also don't know how to drive. So that kind of kills a lot of commercial jobs for me. So the, the, yeah, I, I get the like kind of weird hesitation of trying to, cause I get people, you know, asking me as well, uh, like, oh, you know, I want to be uh, good in archeology. span What are the PhD programs you suggest? What kind of jobs should I start like thinking about? And it's hard not to be like, what jobs? <laughs> mm -hmm. It's one of the, terrible structural things of the very moment of the stress of finishing the PhD where ostensibly like you're also supposed to be going on the job market as if each of those things individually are not stressful enough. Um, and Liz mm. and I and I have talked a little bit on, on the podcast before about the sort of weird, weird malaise that comes after like handing in your discs and then after defending and then after getting the degree, um, even though like we were both very privileged to um, have positions afterwards, but which was not the case for a lot of people we knew, um, even pre-COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, like personally, I think I think the phrase we decided to use to describe was like post-dissertation di depression or like sort of some sort of postpartum dis uh, dissertation depression, because it was just such a like a final push to to mm -hmm. do all that work and then jump through then after creating the intellectual part of it, then jumping then through the tedious hoops of formatting and stuff for submission, mm -hmm. that yeah. it was just, like, the burnout was intense. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. And, like, for me right now, it's really even weirder because, uh, basically, I think two days from now, it will have been a month since I've submitted, and I don't have my Viva dates sorted yet. Um, and just, like, having that weird kind of liminal sp space of, like, I'm done, but I'm not really done. I haven't defended my PhD yet. I don't know what the correction deal is going to be. It just keeps me on edge now. So I can't even get that like, you know, relaxation, like, oh, I'm done. It's great. I'm, I'm finished. It's like, I'm still not entirely done. Uh, and then on top of all that, of course, the, the immigration uh, problems, uh, how I, I'm really anxious about my viva mostly because once my viva is done i can uh, apply to extend my visa which ends in a couple months so it's mm, a lot of things on top of each other that just makes me like yeah constantly on edge i can't relax i keep getting like colleagues and friends just be like you know just take some time for yourself you submitted and i'm like i can't i i don't even know when i'm supposed to start prepping for my viva things like that it's 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 been a really complicated and really difficult uh issue like post submission which i did not expect at all i kind of was like oh i can't wait till i submit then i can just kind of slack off and do whatever and basically i've just been on edge for a month now i'm sorry i think that my in my case i think i was so tired that it almost saved me from stress because i sort of got, just hit the point of of not caring mm -hmm. and that maybe helped to to tide me through the defense and then afterwards then I then I also sort of bottomed out um and it's funny because like my whole mm. my whole project has to do with thinking about like not feeling and not caring as a kind of defense mechanism but 
yeah, somehow the, the exhaustion for me was was a useful way to tap into it. And I, I guess I at the same time, it's not advice I could really hand, hand on of like, yes, you're stressed now, but just get to the point where you're completely burned out. So you just don't care anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably also not useful. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I mean, you've definitely given me some good advice on moving forward, especially in like kind of dealing with that, um, like, you know, exhaustion that comes inherently with submitting. But it's, you know, I, it's hard to even like probably give advice to anyone in this situation because at this point, like, I mean, I hate to say it because everyone keeps saying it, but we are in unprecedented times. <laughs> like, you know, um, my vibe is really weird already because it's going to be online. Not everyone uh, that will be on my panel has done an online vibe before. We're still kind of working out things. Uh, I got an email from my uh, postgraduate research department say, being like, oh, we don't know if you'll have to eventually print out a physical copy for us. Uh, but as of now, not really. So like, I don't even have to like, so like that is, I'm very grateful for because I also just don't want to pay for that. But it's like, okay, so at some point I might have to pay a couple hundred quid to print out my thesis finally. Ugh. So yeah, it's a lot. It's, it's just, it's so weird because I've been, you know, I spent the last four years preparing for this moment and watching my friends go through this process and having like a pretty decent understanding of like, this is how it goes. You're gonna have to like, I'm gonna be like printing all this stuff out. I'm gonna have these three copies. I'm gonna submit it to my university. And then all this happens in March. And it's just like, well, we're kind of making it up as we go along now. So it kind mm -hmm. of feels like all that stability I kind of had in terms of preparing myself is gone. So now I, I'm mm -hmm. kind of just like following the steps of everyone else as they figure it out. Um, and I need that stability because as you, as you can tell from this episode, I'm extremely anxious all the time. And I think it's just, what's absurd is like, even if, if we weren't during a pandemic, there's already so much uncertainty with finishing your PhD to begin with that, mm -hmm. that to have the, the vestiges of that taken away I can't even imagine because I, f I feel at least like when I was defending and afterwards, like there are so many reassuring things that people would say and that friends that were further along or our mentors that were further along would say to me, but also everyone was still mm -hmm. giving their knowledge, like just either from an old, another generation where like, like just the, the structural changes mean that it just hits different because where they're from is diff different, but even like, yeah. me talking to the friends that were just immediately a couple years out and then even then when I got my job or my postdoc and talking to other friends like sort of knowing that the advice I gave is also like still not useful even though we're we're contemporaries to be honest because like there's just too much contingency that's involved and like I feel it's almost mm -hmm. insulting to call it advice because then the advice I think sort of suggests this this neoliberal model of just working hard enough if you get the right advice from the right people but but it really doesn't pass a certain point like I think it's and so I'm not just seeing you, but like other like brilliant scholars that um, I know, maybe not necessarily well, like talking about graduating this time and like applying for jobs and like the despair of, of not having it. And then with additional despair of, of COVID and like, uh, and I know I want to be reassuring, but also I know how empty it can feel and that for me during the time mm -hmm. when I was didn't know what my job was it already felt empty and I wasn't dealing with a pandemic oh, I was just gonna say I mean I was probably answering the question you were about to ask but um, I think the pandemic ultimately just exasperated like not exasperated exasperated no exacerbated that's the word <laughs> I, I'm a PhD person 
um, <laughs> kind of like instabilities that already existed. And I think like, obviously we saw the way the pandemic has just like heightened the kind of like anti-immigrant, anti-Asian kind of like racism that exists in this country. But I also think it's really shown just how poorly constructed the like foundation of the kind of neoliberal uh, structures that we have in place, both in our regular lives and in academia are, and just how it really just, it doesn't support uh, most people, uh, unless you're a very specific type of person. Um, so yeah, like all this stuff that you were talking about with the advice has been just like, I don't want to say meaningless because there's obviously some nuggets of uh, good advice in anything that I've been given from friends and colleagues. But like the way I always think about it is um, when I finished my master's program, I remember I got all this advice for people about applying for PhD programs and like, especially trying to fit it in with my visa at the time. Uh, not no one realizing that the uh, home office had just changed uh, its laws standing here. Um, but basically, I, I remember like interviewing for the PhD position, getting it, but like getting a phone call like right after and being told, we're telling you early because uh, the home office has changed its rules. You can't apply for a new visa in the country. You need to go back to the United States. So <laughs> luckily I had savings and everything, but it was just like, I, it was such a nightmare of being like scrambling to find uh, flights and everything. I had like two weeks to get everything sorted. Um, but yeah, uh, it's just that kind of thing that I've always kept in my head. And I think that's what's made me even more anxious is knowing how quickly things changed and how easily people will just overlook it. So it ends up falling on me to kind of, you know, figure things out. And I'm, I, I already have to deal with so much other stuff. It's kind of like, you know, I, I kind of wish someone actually knew what was happening so that I would feel a little less, uh, you know, out there. Mm hmm. And yeah, the visa situation is oh, oh, always stressful. And I guess I had thought that maybe here there'd be some equivalent like there is in the States where like after your, your, your degree, like usually you have, you can apply for like a temporary one year visa, but I guess that there isn't such a system here. There is, but they're in the middle of changing it, which makes it even more oh, complicated. <laughs> and apparently what I've realized, cause I did a poll on my Twitter uh, a couple weeks back is like, just asking how other people extended their visa if they did. And it turns out every university apparently has their own procedure. Uh, so I couldn't even get advice from other people from different universities because they were told something different. Uh, but yeah, they're in the middle of phasing out uh, the current path and putting in a new one, which I believe will give you up to two years uh, extra, but I only get the okay. one because Why? the time I finish. Exactly. Oh. No, it's completely complicated. There's like, you could easily fix it to make it more fair and better. But of course, that would require the home office to, to care. Um, and that won't happen. So yeah, it's just it's, it's been, like, literally, it's like a Jenga. That's my life right now. <laughs> like there's all the different anxieties stacked upon each other. And it's just it's so frustrating to be like, oh, I like I finished my PhD, and I still have to deal with this stuff, you know? Mm hmm. Like there's just, and I guess just to underline uh, an interview I did, I guess earlier in the year now, but it feels like a billion years ago with um, Dr. Faraha <laughs> Asani, like the way that the respectability of a PhD degree, even one in STEM is not something that, that ever makes you safe. Like the, as we know, like we shouldn't yeah. feel like we're, we're especially privileged as academics 
to have priority in these things and because they're really against all of us and will happily use us as a wedge against uh, migrants that are less less favorable to to institutional recognition as it is mm. and Yapra is incredible and I'm so grateful for her like friendship and everything because she's always there to remind me that uh, I should stop complaining um she's just so amazing and strong and she's gone through so much and then every time like and she's so sweet and she'll always send me like really nice like messages in support and then I'm just like why am I complaining when she's going through the ringer about so many other things uh but yeah no it's definitely and I, it's something I've had a, a discussion with with fellow uh, American migrants here in the UK of that like like acknowledging that privilege of not only being from like the global north from a western country like the united states uh and still struggling with the home office and the hostile environment and also having like basically having a phd and still struggling and trying to complain about that without also trying to uh you know put those hierarchies in place like there shouldn't mm -hmm. be this issue for any migrant of course but like yeah it's it's, it's just kind of being like I have all these privileges. I actually like tweeted a thread about this today. But like I have all these privileges and I'm still like absolutely unable to like live my life <laughs> with the home office. So like other people are just like you can't even imagine the violence that are being inflicted on other uh, migrants and uh, refugees. Yeah. And like one thing I'm wondering if this will impact our because uh, um, I have to renew my visa to um, probably in the, the next year or something like that, that'll be impacting us is now that the mm -hmm. UK government is now taking a stance against their understanding of critical race theory, much like the the Trump government is in the States. That's There's a recent statement that like, well, had a very uh, ill-informed understanding of it, but nonetheless came very clearly out against even the language of it. And then I was like, hmm, yeah, like I can't help but wonder if they were already able to enact such like precise, like sort of bureaucratic violences against uh, migrants of color and migrants that they thought were doing like really sort of questionable work and like finding reasons for that. Like now that perhaps gives them just like a term for them to zero in on and anyone's uh, profile. So. Hmm. Yeah, no, especially because all the things I'm interested in because archeology span um, is an extremely colonial violent discipline that I mean many many people are now trying to like turn the tide a bit and be a bit more reflective and to you know quote unquote decolonize it and all the things that I'm interested in with archaeology is to go against the grain of you know the kind of nationalist imperialist type of archaeology that makes the government happy so mm -hmm. it like right now especially while I'm looking for jobs and trying to apply and uh, you know, create uh, research projects to pitch for uh, funding. Um, most of the ones that I want to pitch are like would probably be seen as you know critical race theory, even though it really isn't. Mm -hmm. Like the, the very fact you might be be critical, and there may be race, may isn't of itself dangerous, as opposed to like you trying to just celebrate the nation's glorious past or something like that. Yeah, like I am an Asian who complains about everything. So I'm surprised I haven't been deported yet under those grounds. <laughs> well, it reminds me of a tweet that I got when I was live tweeting the 
eugenics um, inquiry res- response that happened officially earlier this year. Like, I just I just love this tweet because I think it's just really funny, and I think I want to like write a short thing about it. Where it um it, it called me a mediocre Marxist academic, and I should go back to my failing country. <laughs> because I was insulting like British greats like Galton. <laughs> yeah, I, I just thought it was just like so funny uh, to me because like it was to the the point of parody that Reddy became like sort of like a badge of pride. Like, yes, I am a mediocre Marxist academic from a failing country. <laughs> Although definitely probably we have very different ideas of what it means to be failing. Um... Yeah, like if I was called that, I'd be like, yeah, exactly. Have you seen the United States? Absolutely failing. Exactly. That's how I feel like with Canada. I was like, yes, Canada's a horribly violent settler colonial nation. I'm glad you recognize that that is a failed project. But obviously it's like, it's like, huh, but you just don't have the, quite the right frame of mind, that a frame that I have in terms of being critical of what it means to fail as a nation. And so it's the weird, like mm-hmm. inadvertent intersection of that sort of like, like reactionary critique, which actually like feedback, like you think we should actually be ashamed of it, but actually we, we already are. And actually we were probably even harsher on the failing countries that we're from. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I get that too. Uh, I get a lot of friendly uh, fan mail uh, on my website from people who are kind of like that. And it's just like, I mean, you're not wrong in a lot of respects. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I guess to go back to the, this question of our, our positionality, I'm wondering do you how do you feel like the term model minority works or doesn't work here in terms of how you how east asians are perceived because on the one hand of course it's like the coinage um is a particularly americanist genealogy and yet it's interesting to me that i've seen it travel here and be used institutionally by Mm -hmm. people who are interested in trying to make institutional change and so they're just they're end up turning to this american um vocabulary just to be able to talk about it because there has just been more leeway to develop that that discourse mm-hmm. um and we yeah. could see like uh, definitely talk about a, a lot of it say particularly black studies but but this is the one way i've seen um like asian americanist discourse transfer to like asian diasporic politics like are we model minorities here or how do you feel like the perception is or is not different i think it's just it's hard to say just because especially from my own personal experience i really haven't you know found myself around like it's very rare for me uh, living up north as well to like find myself with another um you know asian uh a british asian or someone like east asian uh so i it's hard for me to even like kind of judge that but speaking from my own experience and knowing like my family which is again it, which is from america but i i kind of come to realize a lot of their reactionary tendencies seem to come from the fact that they were uh, in Hong Kong when it was colonized by Britain and seem to have like kind of cozied up to that, to the colonial mm-hmm. power. Um, I wonder if there's something like that among some people, specifically people who have uh, immigrated here from a place like Hong Kong. Um, but yeah, other than that, it's, it's really difficult because uh, I just really don't find that many people. Like I think in my department, there's one other uh, colleague of mine who is East Asian. Uh, and that's it. And I think that's the only other person that I see on a regular basis. So 
it's it's really like like we were talking about before it it is really fascinating to kind of see the differences especially as someone who's coming from a place that has a huge uh Asian and specifically Chinese migrant uh, population that um, it's that's in New York, you know, it's interesting to me. So my family is also from Hong Kong. And, mm-hmm. and I've also experienced this issue of like, I feel like I've met far fewer East Asians in academia, you're one of the few I have. Um, but my, my friends of color here are overwhelmingly um, black and South Asian. And it's interesting to me like that. Is it because of the sort of that there's not because of the, the population rates or if it's also like there's even more of the sort of neoliberal selectivity in terms of what disciplines are, are considered to be important. Because um, mm-hmm. I'm sort of used to thinking of like East Asians as not being like, as being not that uncommon, say, in the humanities in the US and Canada. Yeah. But I guess like the few other people I know in, in arts and humanities are not from here either. I think that of yeah. different British Asian scholars I know, East Asian scholars I know, and whose work I kind of know, I th- one person comes to mind is Diane Yi. Um, but otherwise, yeah. people I've met are either from Singapore or also from North America um, or from Asia mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. Yeah, sorry. No, sorry. I was just going to agree with you because that's something I've also noticed. And it's really and you know what's funny also is that uh i expected actually to to maybe see more because archaeology is often seen as more of a science in this uh country mm. uh where more of a humanities in uh the states so it's it's really interesting to like come here and to see more or less the same kind of uh you know group of people <laughs> No, that is interesting. And I think that even saying that, that archaeology has a sort of different valence here versus there is, is also something I hadn't really realized that that's, for instance, sort of, the sort of critical theory that I'm used to associating with the humanities in the Canada and the US yeah. is far more associated here with the social sciences, um, yeah, I guess, because yeah. of cultural studies being more t- closely tied to a, a certain strand of sociology and maybe the humanities here being closer to power is my theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can I can definitely see that. And it's really interesting as well whenever I'm like pitching like an idea that uh, is just so much more grounded in the humanities because that's where a lot of my theoretical training comes from. Because uh, especially in the United States, archaeology is just seen as a subset of anthropology. So all my training mm-hmm. in my undergrad was anthropological. So like coming here and seeing how there's like, depending on where you go to, for your training, there's a little less kind of uh, emphasis on that side of things. And then whenever I pitch an idea that is a little bit more uh, humanity side of things, it gets a lot of like, "Mm." (laughs) just (laughs) because, you know, it it isn't necessarily the the thing here. Uh, So that tends to become uh, its own issue with regards to like the things that I want to do in archaeology. Another weird effect for me, at least, is that because I don't, I don't think of my presence as particularly remarkable, like, but because like it's academia here is even more white than the U.S. and Canada, I've encountered mm-hmm. far more people who are find me way more remarkable than I consider myself to be. But because of the new context, it's remarkable that I'm in the position that I am. If that makes any sense, 
and I've had like a number of students who've gone to my talks or and then come up to me afterwards with a lot of emotion about how much it meant to see me um, and things like that. And it just sort of really brings home to me what the structural situation looks like. I mean, I guess on the same hand, like I say that, but like I decided to do my profession without actually being like taught directly by anyone who is East Asian. And so when I think about mm -hmm. that, then it becomes sort of weird about that I managed to decide to become something that I never, even though I never got got to see that. Although eventually my PhD committee, I, I did manage to have Shelley Wong on it, but I was never, I never actually taught to her, by her. So I didn't have like that whole pedagogical experience of like seeing someone that looks like you at the front of the classroom. And indeed, there's whole critique we could have about, you know, the limits of representational politics, but it would be sort of nice to have, take us, you know, a little bit that of a, as a baseline and then get to the more sophisticated parts of things. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel the same thing in that representational representational politics is never going to actually, uh, you know, lead to liberation. But on the other hand, I also would love to see, I've never um, had an East Asian uh, lecture before, like ever in, in my undergrad and my, in my uh, postgraduate studies. Um, I only really know, I think off the top of my head right now, I can think of two other East Asian archaeologists that work in like similar the similar sphere that I do and that's about it um and we're all pretty early career folks um so yeah and also I want to point out that I'm one of those people because after I saw you talk at the uh the college doing stem thing I think I immediately like bull rushed you was like I'm so happy to see another East Asian talk about things that I also Yay. talk about though it made me so happy because I also wasn't sure if like because I feel like I feel like it like Asians, East Asians in particular, like where have such obligation to talk. Well, I was talking a lot about like Asian anti-blackness and settler colonialism. Mm -hmm. And I think that our, because of our relatively privileged positionality, like we have to be very accountable for it. But at the same time, because there aren't even that many of us in this environment, I was like, does, is this argument even going to hit with people because they've maybe have barely even like seen an Asian person talk before? And so I'm really glad that it my talk meant something to someone. <laughs> No, yeah. And like, I was like, I remember before even going to that event, I was very on the edge, like on the fence of like, should I even go and talk at this event? Because I didn't know, it was very weird. I had those same sentiments that you were kind of talking about, especially with like ideas of the, you know, model minority and things like that. I was like, is there even space for me? Like, should I be taking up the space to speak? Um, but I'm, I'm definitely glad I at least went there um, mm -hmm. to meet. I'm, met so many amazing people who I'm now very happy to call friends there. Um, and I guess I also talk, but you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, also very awesome though. But I do think there's a, like, I'm definitely cognizant that it's true that like someone like me is way more acceptable to power um, mm -hmm. as like an Asian, like lighter skin person of color. And even within my institution, something I've reflected on, like with the activists I've met and they're coming and going, that the, I've been able to do work for anti-racist causes, but it's because of like the decades of activism that have been happening on student levels, but also like, like basically black and brown academics. And I say brown in particular, cause like Asian academics who are, um, who are brown, like much more melanated than like a light-skinned East Asian person like me who have been seen as the angry ones who've been seen as disruptors. And because mm -hmm. of that, they've jeopardized their jobs and lost their jobs yeah. or completely burnt out from it. 
and I'm very lucky that I was able to connect with a number of them. And I hope that I'm sort of trying to carry on the torch, but like, it's just very stark to me that if you like just trace the institutional history in terms of who's still there, like there's a very distinct lightning of the people who are doing that work, <laughs> at least in some cases, like obviously we have yeah. a Paul Gilroy who's amazing and that's not the case, but like, at least when it comes to me, like seeing the torch being passed on from someone like Nathaniel C who did so much disruptive work at UCL and then did not get a permanent job there um, as a black queer man who was very unrepentantly angry and vocal. Um, it, yeah. Like that, I think it means we have to be really attentive to the ways that we're responsible and indebted and to have that inform the kind of work we do and mindful of the space that we take up. Yeah. I mean, especially with archeology span here, there's a similar thing specifically because UK archeology, span um, I think at the last, Time they did a poll in like 2013 it was 99% white uh, was the uh, field of archaeology in the UK so you have that issue at hand already and so when I you know either write stuff or you know argue for more inclusive spaces better politics and things like that in the field I end up having to you know base a lot of it from the work that uh, my American my North American colleagues are doing uh, because they're at least slightly more diverse in uh, in North America, from what I can tell. And then there's that issue of like, am I, you know, am I am I centering the wrong thing because I'm pulling from more American perspectives uh, to talk about something in the UK, and it ends up and you know you end up getting a lot more pushback in that too because it's you know you get that whole like oh but we're the UK you know we we're just uh, it's just reflective of our so that we're mostly a white country or whatever, like, yeah. Yeah. So I think Windrush has something to say about that. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's always hard for me to kind of like be mindful of my positionality, as you say, but also recognize the limitations that already exist in archeology span in the UK and that you kind of just have to, you know, make do in some respects. Uh, but I'm glad that uh, archaeology at least inher- is inherently a bit more interdisciplinary. So at least I can uh, work with and collaborate with other really brilliant um, academics of color in other fields. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. ar- archaeology specifically in the UK is a real uh, minefield. Yeah, and I feel like the the whole argument about some of our methodologies or critiques being more US-based Obviously, it does have when it's coming not from um, those who are reacting against us, but from ourselves. Like it's, it is very valid that like Black British intellectuals or their Britishness tends to be like elided, or their Caribbeanness tends to be elided um, for for the Americanness. And mm-hmm. for me, it's it's been easier to get like a clearer understanding of like the traditions that have been here and the texts that have been done in terms of, like Black British feminists, like most famously Claudia Jones, mm-hmm. but then. Um, people like Gail Lewis and a lot of the writing there. And I feel like I've been able to educate myself a lot more about that. But for instance, um, for our listeners who don't know, there's this whole contentious term that was created um, in the mid 20th century called political blackness that brought um, black and Asian people together because they were both migrants from the former colonies and experienced Mm -hmm. racialized violence. Um, and I think I can understand why it existed as of a particular moment as a type of solidarity across dis- difference. Um, but there's also been a very distinct difference between how uh, Black people and um, Asian, specifically South Asian people, have then been able to succeed in in the UK. 
Um, but, and when I look at that though, when they, people talk about that moment of solidarity, I'm not yet clear if there's anyone who's East Asian. And I've actually asked a friend of mine who, um, Jade, who like works on that period and she's looking to talk about black women and not political black women. But, and I asked her about organizations like OWAD and she wasn't sure either. And that's something that yeah. I'm really curious about. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I, it's really like, I actually didn't know about that. So thank you for bringing that up. That's really interesting. But um, I think, yeah, there's that the East Asian uh, identity, especially when you're talking about these sort of things is can be very nebulous and, and fluid. And um, I find that that's a, I mean, that's a struggle that I deal with specifically in terms of finding my place where I should speak where I shouldn't, where uh, I my I don't need to take up space, things like that. Like I said, I wasn't sure if I should take up space at that event. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. It's something that I think I'm going to probably struggle with for a very long time. Uh, adding the extra thing that I'm also mixed, so I, I am half white as well. So I'm I'm always in in the middle of an identity crisis, basically. <laughs> I guess my, my consolation, at least for as someone, although I'm not mixed, is like that I hope that the, we use our the crisis in a way to be more critical rather because we can't be comfortable in any of the existing categories. And if we can mm -hmm. sort of be in that space of discomfort in a way that ends up allowing us to be more insightful as opposed to then clamoring to be a part of any of them or somehow just trying to synthesize them, I I hope yeah. at least that's that, that's how I try to console myself when I'm beset with anxiety. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I try to console myself with like ice cream usually, so that might be better. Yes, I just so, bought. I actually, apropos, just came back from my my new the Asian market that's near me because I moved at the beginning of September, and I just came across uh -huh. these amazing ice cream bars, which are um, black sugar milk tea boba milk uh, ice cream Ooh. bars. I'm so excited to try them. I will let you know if they're good. I think I'd seen pictures on it on the big um, subtle Asian traits page for people who don't know. It's like this page of like Asians and some non-Asians that's like almost 2 million strong. And I saw a photo there like like last month, but I was like, oh, it's probably in the States. We're never gonna even find them here. So I just saw them in the market. I was like, oh my God, I could actually eat them. So I'll let you know. And if you don't have any around you, maybe eventually people can travel and I'll save a couple for whenever you come to London. I am absolutely going to, immediately after this, I'm going to look and see if the big market near us in Leeds uh, <laughs> has something similar because I do love that kind of stuff. I'm a big fan of it. Yeah.